You're listening to the Empty Stringers Podcast, where every week we talk about locating, catching, and the conservation of redfish. My hope is to share with you what I'm seeing from the polling platform so that together we can catch more fish. Think of it as your weekly fishing report. Welcome back to the podcast, folks. I'm your host, Matt Parrish, and we've got weather changing as I sit and talk to you here this evening. It's Wednesday night like normal, and we've got a front that blew through today, and that front did not blow all the water out because we had a north wind. I'm looking at it right now, and uh, it's showing that it's 24 and a half knots from north, due north. That's not going to blow any water out. It was a little bit of northeast early and then a little bit of northwest, and then it went due north. And uh, like I talked about last week, water levels have slowly begun to rise. They hit 1.3 today uh, above MLLW on the chart, and that is good news. They're still dropping back out. Uh, around the half minute, you know, half uh, foot mark or so, which is totally normal. That's a little bit water, a little bit more water than we've been having. And that's going to continue on until we get that next full moon. And that's when you're going to start really seeing it start to, to come up big time. Now, the water temperature is what we want to pay attention to because the water temperature has been 67. It's 67 right now. It was hovering. In the low 70s, um, it's it's been right in that high 60s, the low 70s, and that is what is going to muddy the water, which we hate, but we love it because it's going to hatch all the little bait, and we're going to have a couple of weeks of small shad in the water, small bait. And then probably two-ish weeks from now, we're going to start seeing schools pop up. That's just my loose guesstimate. I guess we're going to have to wait and see how it plays out. But we've got the Galveston Redfish Series hourly tournament coming up this Saturday. I'm fishing that, that tournament with my son, Reed. It does not appear that they have a youth division, and that's okay just decided we're going to do the normal uh, division. He's already pumped up about fishing it. And I thought, what the heck? I'm not going to, I'm not going to cancel plans because they don't have a youth division. We're just going to fish it and have a good time and, and do what we do. So I'm looking forward to that right now. The weather forecast for Saturday, I really don't even want to say it because tournament day I mean, you really can't even have a tournament unless the wind's blowing like 30 miles an hour. But right now, I mean, Saturday's looking really good. Like winds from, you know, four miles an hour early to like, you know, nine, ten miles an hour later on. Like that is amazing. There's going to be a lot of boats on the water though. And we're going to have to deal with that. I've got a few spots picked out that I'm fairly confident nobody else is going to fish uh, because my boat kind of lends itself to fish in these areas. Uh, so I'm going to try that. And 
one of the thing you can bet on uh one of the things you can bet on this time of year is that the fish are fairly territorial, so they're not moving too far uh because the bait is starting to hatch out now that I talked about a few weeks ago how far the fish will travel to to get a meal and that that is true, but what's changed now is that the water's warming up, so they're not having to move as much to stay comfortable. Now it's all about the food. Well, f- the food is hatching or is about to hatch in the areas they're hanging out in, wherever they are. It's going to hatch in a lot of places. So they don't have to move too far. When that water level comes up, they are going to start to slide back up into the marshes. And right now you probably go in there and find a few fish in the marsh, but I don't think it's quite ripe for the taking just yet. I think it's going to be a little bit before uh, we we start seeing tons of fish up in the marsh. I've been catching a few, but I haven't spent a ton of time back in there. It's kind of been a ghost town. All that, I haven't been on the water in a week, so all that could have changed by now. I went out, uh, I went out one day last week uh, for just a couple hours by myself and fly fished. And I had a an area that I had been seeing fish really, really shallow, really early in the morning. So I go to this area, and I see a redfish with his back out of the water coming towards me. I put, uh, surprisingly, I put a great cast in front of him. He took one look at my fly and decided he didn't want none of that. So 10 minutes later... Another fish back out of his out of the water coming towards me. I put another good cast in his face. He took one look at my fly and changed zip codes. So I changed flies and then did not see another redfish. Uh, I, bl- I was blind casting the fly and had one on, uh, just hooked in blind casting, and uh, that fish came unbuttoned because I got a horrible hook set. So when I'm fly fishing from the platform by myself, uh, I've been talking to a lot of different people that do this, and here's the consensus that I've come up with. Uh, Garrison Guide Service, uh, that fellow, I hung out with him at the fishing show. He was telling me how he did it, and uh, you know, Thorsten, my buddy Thorsten, does it a similar way. I've kind of watched him do it before, but I use the bucket. Uh, I take the bucket and put it on the platform with me. So two thirds of the bucket is on the platform and about a third of it's hanging off. I strip off all the line I'm going to need to cast as far as I can cast. And then I take my fly. I have just a rod's length of line out. I take my fly and hook it on the fly bucket. And so when I see a fish, oh, and I've got my the butt handle of my rod stuck in the handle, the open handle of the bucket, and the rod is sticking straight out in front of me. So I'm pulling along, I see a fish, I bend down, clip the push pole in the pole holder, grab my flower rod, usually two false casts, and I can get out. Maybe three if I if it's if I'm you know two tight up in there and I've really got to loosen it out two or three false cast I've got enough line out 
and uh, I'm putting that fly in front of the fish. And that worked really well for me this last time. We'll see how it goes. I'm going to fine-tune it and adjust it. I'm still really getting used to that whole thing. Um, And ideally, it is better to just have somebody on the back pulling you around, right? That's not always possible. So uh, I also did a little exploring while I was out because that's what I tend to do. And I went to places I'd never been. I uh, I mapped them and checked some shorelines in some new areas to see what kind of bottom we had, uh, what kind of tidal flow we had at the time, all that stuff. I love to do that. I think you should explore as much water as possible because a, a situation may, may present itself to where you go, you know what, I know a spot that's going to be perfect for this. And that has caught me a lot of fish using that mentality and getting out in the bay and exploring areas that I wouldn't normally go. And this time of year, just before the schools kick off and I'm living up in the marsh, it kind of makes me wonder, well, what's going out? What's going on over in this deeper area? And what's going on close to the channel over here? This or this uh, driftwood lined uh, shoreline that's that's near a deep uh, channel. Let me go check that out. So those areas can be good, and I'm still learning, kind of building my my game out on areas such as that. So I think uh, all things considered, if I'm game planning for this tournament this weekend, the first thing I want to do is put Reed on an easy catchable fish. And I know exactly where I'm going. I'm going to be in about six to eight inches of water. I know that these fish are going to feed really shallow early on. And I'm going to try to get him to catch one of those fish. And then I'm going to make his skinny rear end get up on the platform and push me around till I catch a fish in that same area. And then once the water gets moving good and the sun gets up a little bit, I'm going to go check one or two places back in this marsh that uh, I think we can we can do okay at. And that's really the game plan. I don't expect to catch, uh, you know, something crazy like eight or ten fish. I think what we're aiming to do is probably put four or five fish in the boat if we're lucky and uh, pick some winners out of that. It's an hourly tournament, so you can weigh one fish in every hour. And the goal really, and it's not like I'm giving away secrets everybody who fishes this tournament does this but you try to have your nine o'clock fish and your 10 o'clock fish in the boat and then you weigh in at like 950 and then at like 1005 and then you're out off again fishing you try to catch your let's say your 12 and one right weigh in weighing at 1250 and then you know 101 or whatever that is uh that's the program, and so we're going to give it our best go in that regard. We're going to be throwing paddle tails, small paddle tails. Um, I've got DSL and Caden, and we're going to be around some structure that will require the use of some weedless gear, and I'm going to use that uh, K Wiggler, that Wiggler Jr. That thing is money on a weedless uh, rig, and so... Those are the three paddle tails I'm going to be throwing. I'm not kicking off into any kind of hard baits just yet, but that's, you know, that depending on what I see on the water when I get out there, I may 
switch to it. If there's a whole bunch of little bait in the water and it's all uh, congregating around drains and stuff like that, you better believe I'll throw a top water if I need to. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, Kevin uh, Franklin reached out and said that Anglers Anonymous is now carrying his custom painted baits. Uh, so you can find them at Anglers Anonymous and at Fish Sticks. You can also find uh, Wayne Griggs' uh, Diamond G baits at Fish Sticks as well. And you can go to Fish Sticks and register for this tournament. So definitely do that. I saw on uh, the Bite Me page, I was listening to the Bite Me podcast today to make to see if they were going to cover it, uh, but they did not. So uh, Jordan made a comment on the Bite Me page about real cleaning and doing it yourself. And his comment could not have been more timely because I had one of my Lou's custom lights in about 100 pieces on my desk at the time. And so I just got done putting that reel back together. And everybody was kind of giving some tips on that thread. I wanted to highlight just a couple of my go-tos if you're going to clean your own reel. First of all, why? Why would you clean your own reel? Number one, for me, so first off, Anglers Anonymous is who I take mine to if I'm going to take it. If I have a broken part that's not a bearing, then... uh I'm taking it there. They do a great job. But for me, it's 45 minutes to Anglers Anonymous. It's 45 minutes back. I've got to go twice because i got to drop the reel off or reels, and then i got to go back and pick it up. I timed myself uh, Monday night or whatever night it was I took that, up, that reel apart. It took me seven minutes to take that reel apart. And I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't in a big hurry, but I've also done it a few times. So, but that's seven minutes. And then it took me, I had a hell with the E-Clip. The E-Clip always gives me hell. And so it took me probably 30 minutes, we'll say, to put it all back together. And that was slow because I really struggled with this E-Clip. Uh, so that's saving a ton of time. Even if I do all three of my reels, then I'm good to go. So here are the basics that you need to know if you want to tackle it yourself. Uh, I'm going to try to give credit where credit's due because there were a few comments on the page that I thought were money. Um, Caleb, uh, Captain Caleb McCumber commented on there, you need to buy something nice. He is spot on. Buy an expensive reel. The... The more expensive the reel, the better made it's going to be. The more sound and sturdy the parts are going to be. These loose custom lights that I have, I've had them apart probably four times, uh, cleaning them over the time period I've had them, and even doing little minor repairs. They're built well. Their parts are sturdy. Uh, I'm not dealing with little tiny plastic crap. You know, it's an aluminum frame, it's ultralight, it's got good guts to it. So buy something nice if you're going to work on it. Number two, uh, get you a small set of magnetized screwdrivers. Get you a bottle of real wash ready to go, a bottle of carburetor cleaner 
ready to go. And then I use two types of oil. I use the Lose Real Oil that comes with the, the reel in the box, the little tiny tubes. And I also use a Remington Gun Oil because it is uh, moisture displacing. It's kind of, it's almost like a WD-40 in the sense that it, it gets rid of that water. So um, you want to you wanna have those things on hand. You want to have a couple of microfiber towels. Don't use regular towels or any type of towel that's going to leave lint behind. Because when you're rubbing and cleaning these parts or drying them off, you don't want to leave lint and stuff in the reel. That's going to cause you problems later on. Also, don't go crazy with the grease. I have a little thing of marine grease. I use a tiny bit of it uh, between my my reel plates. And other than that, I'm just using the oil. So I might put a little bit of grease on the cog that's in there. But don't go nuts with the grease. The more grease and oil you put in the reel... Now, you have to put some because you want to lubricate everything, but the more, if you overdo it, you're just allowing a dust trap to form. Dust and grime will will attach to that stuff. You'll notice the next time you take your reel apart, it's going to be pretty gunked up. So, you also need a, like a, I I have this nice tool mat that uh, my buddy Ben Sue got me. Very thoughtful gift. I lay it out on my desk. It has a spot to put little parts. I put my parts in. You pick the order, right? But pick an order. When I take it out, I lay it on the left and I work to the right. And then when I'm done, I go in reverse. I start putting things back together from the right to the left. That's important. But above and beyond that, here's what I would say. As you're taking the reel apart, and this is not going to be, it's not going to happen on your first time. But do it two or three times in a row. So do two or do if you have two or three reels, do them all at the same time, one after the other. But complete one, and then do the other one, and then do the other one, right? And while you're taking those reels apart, don't just memorize the order and try to memorize where the parts go. Try to cognitively understand how the reel functions how it works, what, what, when you click the button, what does it do to the insides? When you turn the crank, what does it do to the insides? Try to learn how it works. And that way, when something goes wrong, you'll catch it. Or if your parts get out of order, you'll catch it. You'll notice that your little flywheel thing is on backwards because it's not kicking your button shut. Or your worm gear, uh, it goes in, uh, one way and it like mine has a collar that fits in it and then you have to put this little plastic washer and then the e-clip that I have a hard time with goes on top of that the reason I have a hard time with the e-clip is because I don't do it right every time it's one of those things I never remember how to do right and I fight it until I go oh wait that's how it goes and then I don't even need the pliers I just put it on with my finger so but having done it enough times now, the next time I'm going to remember that, I'm like, I'm a slow learner. Like, hey, I've struggled with this E-clip for a long time. Now I get it, right? But I know how it's supposed to work. I paid attention to the way it, it happens. So I could scatter that reel into a bunch of different pieces and, uh, 
you know, not have any, not have the pieces in any specific order, and I could probably still put it together and make it work because I've paid attention to the functionality of it. So, uh, those are your tips. Um, some somebody reached out and asked me how much of it do you take apart, buddy? I take it apart until I have the frame in two pieces and nothing on it, nothing but your brake on the break end. I take the spool out. I take the worm gear out. I take all of it out. Uh, only thing I leave, and I don't always leave this, but I'll, if it's not in too bad a shape, I'll leave the, uh, the plastic cogs on the, on the crank handle side. I'll leave those on, but I take the, the, all the metal cranks off and, uh, all that stuff. So get in there and clean it up real good and just decide that, hey, look, if I screw this up, then I get if you buy a nice reel, you don't want to take it all apart and then and then screw it up. You just kind of got to do it uh, and not be afraid of it. So the first time I did it, I spent two hours on my hands and knees looking for a tiny spring and a tiny washer because I was not going to have to throw that reel out or take it in and go here. Can someone fix this? So I would just say like, be really careful about losing parts, have a contained, well-lit area and you're going to be fine. Uh, you'll be good to go. Now I will not be on the water tomorrow. I am going to be back in Baytown working on that gum house, but good progress has been made, but I'm going on vacation next week with the family and I need to get it to a certain point so that my contractor can come in and do countertops and the final cleanup. So I've got some ceiling fans to put up tomorrow. I've got to install the fireplace. I've got to put in the water heater, the dishwasher, the, the oven, the all the things. Doorknobs, toilet, vanity. I've got to do all that. So I've got several days worth of work try to get done so that uh, the contractor can pick back up and finish out his piece. So that's what I'll be doing tomorrow, but I'll be fishing Friday and in the tournament on Saturday. So I hope to see you guys out on the water. If if it's me and you're just like, like, okay, I hadn't been out there in a week and we're at a point in time of the season where it's changing rapidly. Things are changing out there every day. I am going to not ignore the marsh altogether. I'm going to go back in the marsh and check it out, whether that's me running through it to see if I splatter some bait somewhere, see if I, I, if I, you know, I'm going to be running shallow enough to where I can see a redfish push off if I spook one. Those are going to be my cues to look for bait and redfish to go, all right, it's starting to happen back there. As the water comes up and it allows, I'm going to be checking that. But I'm going to be spending a lot of my fishing time still in your more open bay, main, you know, shell reef areas, spool banks, near deep water, that kind of thing. You can find fish consistently in those places right now. You may not find a ton. You may drift between two spoils and catch four or five fish, bam, just like that and then not get another bite for the rest of the day. 
You may catch two fish, bam, bam, right in a row, not get another bite the rest of the day. It's been hot and heavy when you run into them, and then it, uh, it they they disappear on you. So don't be discouraged. Go check out your areas and know that the marsh is getting close to being ready to kick off. It's just probably not quite there yet. If that changes, if I see something different, I'll let you guys know next week. I do plan on recording a podcast before I go on vacation. I'll be on vacation Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday of uh, next week. But because I'm fishing uh, Friday and Saturday, I have some stuff to talk about. So I will be putting out a podcast uh, before I leave on that vacation. Hope to see you guys at the tournament. Let's get into our let's get into our Bible tidbit. We're, this may end up being a two part Bible tidbit. So here's our question. It's an age old question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Okay. I said that backwards. Sorry. Why, why, why do bad things happen to good people? Okay. And maybe we answer the vice versa question too. So I don't want to go too long. So this is going to be short. I may pick back up and, and finish this off next week. So do bad things happen to good people? Obviously. Yes, they do. We all know someone who. It's a great person, great family. They come down with cancer. They die young. Or they lose their job due to no fault of their own and they're under financial stress. Or yada, yada, yada. They've been in an abusive situation. They've You name it, right? It happens. Why does it happen is the question. Well, there's... a I can't even believe I'm trying to I'm trying to tackle this within a small Bible tidbit because I could literally talk for three hours in a podcast about this. So keep in mind, I am being as brief as I possibly can, and I'm going to paint with a rather broad brush, and there are lots of minute details that I could cover that I'm not going to, at least not yet. Here's premise number one. Premise number one is that are there su- is there such a thing as a good person? If you were to look at the standard that God uses of holiness, no. The only good person that's ever existed is Jesus. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've thought about something you shouldn't have thought about. You've done something you should have done, shouldn't have done. You've told a lie. You, you get it, right? You've sinned. Not only have you sinned, but you are born with this disease living inside you called sin. And the actual sins that you commit are just merely uh, symptoms of the disease that you've been carrying since birth. Now, all of us, due to our sin, deserved the wrath of God. But Christ paid for our sins and satisfied the wrath of God when he gave his own life up on the cross. So, Christ, being the only really ever good person, had something very bad happen to him. 
He was murdered on the cross. But in the murder of Christ, God's plan was taken to fruition. God's purposes were realized in his kingdom through the sin of his people to put his son on the cross. Okay? So, I will argue in the vein of God's sovereignty like we talked about last week a little bit. uh, Nothing is outside of the will of God. Your suffering has a purpose. The Apostle Paul suffered probably more than, certainly more than anyone in the New Testament. He was shipwrecked, beaten, uh, ostracized, you name it. The guy had a rough go. And he was doing more for the for the sake of the gospel than, than anyone else at the time. And God did not give him an easy road. If God is not going to spare his son or someone as passionate for the cause as the Apostle Paul, our chances of, of avoiding suffering are not great. Suffering has a purpose. It is used to discipline us when we need to be disciplined and also to sharpen us, whittle us into what God is making us, uh, the person that God's making us into. The The sanctification process involves suffering in many ways. If we look at uh, a man who, by all accounts, says it in Scripture, Job was uh, a man that followed God. He had everything stripped of him. His family died. Uh, He caught, uh, contracted leprosy and was incredibly ill. His friends turned their back on him. Uh, His wife was was rather perplexed by his situation and didn't offer him much comfort. Job had it really, really, really bad. Like his whole family dies except for his wife. All his kids die. And then he gets leprosy. God eventually restores him, but he gets uh, into that predicament because the Bible gives us a behind-the-curtain look at Satan going to God and saying, what about your servant Job? He's like, you've you've prospered this guy, and the only reason he praises you is because of how good you've given it to him. You've, You've made him wealthy, and he has a great family, and his health is great. Uh, if you took all that stuff away, he would not praise your name. And God says to Satan, go ahead and do all those things, but don't kill him. And Satan does. And that's why Job went through all of that suffering. Well, what's the, pur- what's the purpose of that? And that, is that fair to Job? Forget about the word fair. Remove it from your vocabulary. It doesn't really exist. Uh, life is not fair. We were not all born on the same footing. We don't all have the same natural advantages. Life is not fair. So Job suffered through leprosy and all of his children died. 
because Satan wanted to test his loyalty to God, and God gave Satan permission to do that. How crazy is that? And in the end, Job praised God, and eventually God restored his health, and obviously not his kids because they passed away. But uh, God was praised. His God's glory is why everything happens the way that it does. You can be sure that if something is occurring, God is finding a way to get the glory in it. Now, what if you're one of Job's kids and you died? Like you're dead. All because God and Satan have this little wager going on. That's tough for a lot of people to stomach, and I understand that. I understand that. But if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, we have a sovereign God who creates people for purposes, right? So Job's kids created for a purpose. Their their purpose potentially was fulfilled either before their death or in the fact that they were dying at the time they died. That's a hard truth to swallow, but it is reconciled with the reality that we see around us. I had a, uh, I had an employee very uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, just a absolute wonderful human. She had just come back from maternity leave, and uh, her her young son, three month three months old, died in his sleep. And so uh, last Saturday, we went up to the um, to the memorial. And uh, that's one of those things that I just don't, I don't understand it, but I know, I trust and believe that God has deemed it necessary for the sake of his good name. He's working out all things together for his glory and our good. Now, how can, how can her losing her son be good for her? Let's ask her in 20 years. You know, like really, have you had something happen to you in the past that at the time you thought was the worst thing that could have happened and you look back at it now and you see God's hand and you see how special it was in getting you where you are today? I've had those things happen in my life. And uh, it was God's use of suffering in my life that catapulted me to where he needed me to go. And it also brought about his glory. So uh, we may follow this up with a part two because I may have I may have uh, planted seeds for questions that you're going to have over the, over the next week or so. If you want to read the account of Job, it's in the book of Job. It's spelled like Job, J-O-B, but it's pronounced Job. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, you can get to that whole little behind-the-curtain look pretty early in the book, so just haul off and start reading it. It's in the first couple of chapters, so do that. Uh, if you would, uh, we're going to do a Caden lure giveaway, and so uh, I don't have my ducks in a row to do it this 
week, but I am going to do it next week. And I'm telling you I'm going to do it next week so that I can remember for my own self. So hold myself to the to the fact that I'm going to do it. So we're going to do a Caden Lure giveaway. I'll give you the details of that. Uh, follow me on Instagram at empty underscore stringers. You can book a trip with me or stay in my Airbnb at capped Matt two T's parish two R's dot com. Go in there, check it out. I've had some people start to book in the spring. I think it's going to fill up. Also, tell a buddy about the podcast. I would really appreciate it. Or leave a review. That'd be awesome. You guys have a great week, and I will talk to you next time. Bye.